to ask the Lord's blessing. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for this body of believers. We're grateful that we're centered on you, your word, and the love and fellowship we have with one another because of it. Thank you for the variety of opinions here. Thank you for the variety of backgrounds uh, because it proves to us what good your son does for man. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay. A few weeks ago, as you know, I hold strange views. Some of those, my strange views become public. Sometimes young people, I won't mention any names, but her initials are Helena Kirkland. Um, oh, I made a mistake there. Um, she came by one night, I think it was Monday, a few weeks, a couple weeks ago. We sat on the back porch, talked theology, which is always nice to do. She had Bible verses. That were, were, she was concerned about, you know, how odd I was. And uh, so we talked about it. Great to talk about the scripture. Uh, and as, as uh, then she went away, because she doesn't live with us. And uh, I was thinking about one of the passages she had brought up, Psalm 139. Um, and so last week, I was looking at Psalm 139 to think about preaching on it last week. And a footnote took me to Jeremiah 6, and I ended up there. So this morning I said, Psalm 139 it is. But the reason it was brought up in our discussion is for centuries, millennia, Christians have argued about the nature of the knowledge of God from classical thinkers to Christian thinkers. And given that it's a doctrinal fight, there is a tendency in any doctrinal fight when you get a verse, you ever, there, there's that verse that you always keep in your, it's sort of like a concealed carry uh, thing. You have a verse that you're just waiting for them to say something and just say, well, as it says in Colossians, and you lay it on. And it's, it's all, it, you feel that the verse is almost like you, name of your opponent, have wronged God. You know, that's what you think it says. Psalm 139 has become a proof-texted thing in the arguments in Christian theological circles about the nature of the knowledge of God. Now, it's about the knowledge of God. But I want to bring up something about the passage that doesn't matter what you think of Psalm 139 to make sure what this what happens when we proof-text things. We start to use it for this task of proving your opponent wrong. And it might not have been about that when the apostle or the prophet or the king of Israel wrote it down. It may have touched on those subjects, but I pick it up and I, it's like I'm a, um, a primate figuring out how to use simple tools. You know, I, I, I get a rock and I turn it into a hammer. Oh, you've done that working on things in your shop. You look around, there's something you, you, you don't have your hammer. Any hammer is not nearby and you grab a craftsman wrench and you start to hit things with the craftsman wrench. Because you know they'll replace it if you bust it. 
Well, it wasn't the wrench. Though it's the adage that your father probably told you about the right tool for every uh, task. A proof text is taking a text that is the word of God and because it addresses or walks closely enough for to cast a shadow on your subject, you use it for that thing. And then you can't read it without ever seeing that being the thing it's answering. You lose what the psalmist was talking about. Because he wasn't talking about, no matter how much he talks about the knowledge of God, he wasn't trying to lay out the biblical backing for a Platonic notion of the knowledge of God. He might believe that, but he wasn't doing that. And when, when you have a... Uh, um, a proof text arising, you lose your proof text, you lose the original meaning. You didn't just gain something fraudulent. You lose what God was trying to tell you. And a lot of times in Psalm 139, I know that, this is when I realized it because I'd been through this passage a lot with various people. They hadn't read all the way through the psalm. So what do you mean you haven't read out? Do you know where this is going? Do you know where he's going with this great declaration of the knowledge of God? Because when I don't know where he's going with it, I can turn the passages, no matter what view I hold, into something else. It's not here. It addresses or speaks of the knowledge of God, but it's not here to create a good doctrine of the knowledge of God. We think it's there, you know, you have a statement in your creed or confession, and then you have a scripture reference, Psalm 139, verse. And really, the psalmist is writing about the knowledge of God a little more personally. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, thou hast searched me, known me. Thou knowest when I sit down and when I rise up. Thou discernest my thoughts from afar. Thou searchest out my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue. I, O Lord, thou, dost, thou knowest it altogether. Thou dost beset me behind and before, and thou layest thy hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And as I looked at this, so what is David doing in the psalm? David is walking up to the knowledge of God and saying, there is a... There is this great knowledge. And for David, the important thing is not how much it is, but who it's about. It's about him. Sometimes when we talk about the knowledge of God, we lose the personalness of God's knowledge in our attempt to make the knowledge absolute, platonic in its perfection. It's fine if you believe that. fine if you hold that. But David's not dealing with trying to figure out when I say, search me and known me. He doesn't go, thou hast searched everybody. 
everything, every molecule, every atom. David and, and God may have searched every molecule, every atom, every person, etc., etc., etc. David's concerned with thou hast searched me. Now, and look at what had happened. There's an active observational quality in God. God is saying, David's saying, you have looked at me. You have searched, you have known, you have discernest, you knowest, searchest out, thou art acquainted. My tongue has a word on it. You know what that word is before I utter it. Beset me behind, thy hand upon me before, David wants you to know, or he wants to remind himself, that his God has this immediate, immediate presence, or the presence in the immediate you. All those things, sit down, rise up, my thoughts, how I walk, where I'm going, when I get there, all my ways, what I'm saying, very much the immediate circumstance in David. Let's say, go, yeah, that's true. This first section is all the immediate acts, the things that you get up and do each day. And let's claim that since he knows it of David, he knows it of you. And you start to like that word immediate. It's kind of, especially, we're kind of a hip church, right? We say things like existential. There you go, take that one home. It's kind of existential. Yeah. That immediate knowledge. Now, the, the temptation, because we're Christians, we know the church fights are really important to us. So, we've got to somehow turn this doctrine of the immediate knowledge of God, of you, the individual, into a doctrine we can creedily affirm, divide into a denomination, and fight with others. But that's not David's idea either. He's introducing you to the knowledge of God of you. It's not I'm, I'm being introduced to the knowledge of God as a subject. I'm affirming that God knows me. Different categories. One is designed to fit into a creedal formulation. And whatever your creedal formulation, God bless you if you're right. Or even if you're wrong. But that's, that's another category. David's not writing a creed. He's speaking of God's knowledge of him. Not our knowledge. We turn it into a creed, we start, it's us talking about our knowledge of him. David's talking about God's knowledge of us. So what does it mean? Once I start thinking about, oh, this is about being known, not the position of God knowing you, but being known. Now, you look at those things, sit down, rise up, thoughts, words, where I'm going, where I get there, all my ways. It's like besetting me behind and before. Stalking you. Now, God knows us in that every axis in your immediate life is on display. Now, now there are some of us who are concerned about the U.S. government's 
ability to turn on a TV camera in your TV looking at you in your skivvies in your bedroom and decide whether or not you're a threat to the state. Okay? That there are the NSA is out there collecting data off your phone, metadata, and, and they're doing it to the high and mighty, and they might even be doing it to you. There's things to be concerned about that in terms of our... But then as Christians, we're going, you know, I don't want, just like I don't want everybody to know, you warn young people, don't put everything you do on Facebook. Everybody doesn't want to know that, and you are going to be embarrassed later on. We're a, little, we're a little private. And we think it's almost more gentlemanly or ladylike to be a little private about stuff. Too much information, right? We, we don't have that privilege with our God. He's got all the information. He's observed you. He has pulled all the data. He's read all the phone calls. He's turned on the camera in your TV set while you were in your skivvies, drinking PBRs, watching some show on Netflix that you shouldn't have been watching. So he's observed you along every axis, and it's not so much that the Christian church needs to have a document that affirms this, but that you have a God that you know is this. The second section from verse 7 through 12 says, you know, and this is projection on the part of David. He's saying, you know, come to think of it, there isn't any place I could go to get away from it. Not only is he in every respect in my, I like to call it the proximus now, where I am right now, this is something that God is looking at from every axis and pulling all the data. And if I thought I could go someplace and get away from it, whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there thy hand shall lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, let only darkness cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to thee, the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to thee. That this observation of God travels with you. You've seen those, what are they called, thriller films where the person suddenly realizes his phone, they've been pinging his phone and they know him where he is because they found his phone. And the other guy says, oh, you idiot, you let them, you turned on your phone and now they know where we are. Well, God already knew where you were. Didn't matter where you went, other side of the sea. And for us today, we think of this as interstellar travel, because I'm going across the sea was equivalent to interstellar travel. If I went across the sea, if I went in the darkness. Now, when someone says... Run away, like Jonah does. You know, I'm going to run away to Tarshish. I'm going to flee from the presence of the Lord. Or anybody, I'm going to turn the lights off. What it says about the evil men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. People think that the darkness hides things, but the darkness is as light to God. 
And they make the mistake, I have this little passage because it sprang to mind out of 1 Kings 20. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, their gods are gods of the hills, so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. They had lost the battle to the Jews, and that failure was explained by, you know, gods don't travel well. They're locatable. They're, he's a mountain god. Of course we lost up there. Let's bring him down here. Well, when God tells the king of Judah what to do, he says, you know, they think I'm just a god of the mountains. Let's go teach him a lesson. We all need to lead, we need to learn the lesson that this is a travelable observational knowledge of God in who you are, what you're like, what you're up to in the now. Now, what I want you to think about is my use of this word immediate. Because distance and darkness are both claims to invisibility. If I go far enough away, little Johnny goes off to college in Connecticut. No offense, Connecticuters. And loses his faith, or drinks too much, or does all sorts of other things. It's because he thinks he's become invisible by distance. Mom and Dad can't see me. My God can't see me, because my God is the God of Idaho. That's what you think happens. The lights go off. People steal televisions. Because we're invisible. So, what I want you to think about, not just distance and, and darkness, but think about what other things you use as unseen tricks to make you think of your visible qualities that you actually hold right now. Because the you right now is the only you that exists. That's Evan's position. There is no you two days from now. There's only you right here. There's only you in this place. There isn't another doppelganger wandering the streets of Pullman that's you. That represents your other choices in life. No, just you right here, standing before your God, visible, and no matter where you would go, visible, observable. What do we do to make our visibility less so? Some people will spread out God's knowledge, and when they start talking about God's knowledge, they end up start talking about, because classical theism argues that complete platonic knowledge of the future, the problem is, sometimes the person who is arguing for God's knowledge of the future is trying to make God's knowledge of you immediately invisible. Talk less about now, talk more about your future. Does he know what I'm going to be doing in 10 years? Is that important as him knowing what you're doing right now? Right now. Who are you? How are you thinking of others? How are you treating people? Some people think that the privacy of the home, the sanctity of the castle doctrine, that I go to my home and I can treat people like crap because I'm at home. Because they're family. At church, of course, we're all, you know, well-behaved because God can see me in church. We need to have a better doctrine of our God seeing us 
and not doing a little dance. Because even some people who, you know, as you know, I deny the existence of time and the future, so. And some people could use that doctrine to hide. Well, God doesn't. If God doesn't know that, he probably doesn't know a lot of things. We're always trying to escape God's knowledge of us, and not because we're trying to escape orthodoxy. We don't like finding out that he is besetting me behind and before. Your opinion about God seeing you, you ever had that told to you about the judgment? You know, the judgment, what they're going to do? They got video. And they're going to play on a big screen your whole life. What you thought and did. And everybody's going to see it. Your grandma is going to see it. We don't like that. We don't like having people know that stuff. There's a motivator. So we have reasons to try to get away from it. But sometimes, if you have the right thought that your God knows you, we've got to, we've got to say, what is David doing this? He's not setting this up as, oh man, God knows stuff. Oh man, I can't get away from him. Because he says, verse 10, thy hand shall lead me. Even there, thy hand shall lead me. And thy right hand shall hold me. There, there are elements of, when you realize that your God is the God of the plains as well as the mountains, that means that you are victorious on the plains as well as the mountains. There are two ways the knowledge of God, of you, can touch you. One is besetting you. And the other is finding out that this wonderful thing we have in God and Christ is always in your life immediately. Don't, don't run off to either say the future isn't or the future is because God's knowledge of it's not what the, the psalmist is about. He is about what he is being, is doing. Right here, right now. And I should When I look at uh, God's knowledge, and you may choose to believe that he knows all events of the future, you may choose to believe that he doesn't know all events of the future because the future doesn't exist, but you want to be big about he knows me. I am actual and he knows me. And he knows that things that, 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 that boggle my mind. The, the psalmist is, is uh, comments on that, the how too wonderful, so high I cannot attain it. We're not supposed to be thinking about all the things we don't know that what God knows that are too high. We, we acknowledge that, we say it, we point at it, but really the psalm is about something you know and he knows. You know you, he knows you. He searched me and known me. For thou didst form me in my inward parts. Thou didst knit me together in my mother's womb. I Now, sometimes Psalm 139, people go at it because it's about God's knowledge and they want to prove classical theism about that point. Other times, you're going to land on this passage because you're anti-abortion. The Psalm is not about abortion. It is not about classical theism. It tells you true things. But it says, the reason God knows you in the immediate is he made you. 
I praise thee for thou art fearful and wonderful. Wonderful are thy works. And then the phrase, thou knowest me right well. Put that on your fridge. God knowest you. It's a great diet thing. You know, the Lord knowest you right well. So stay away from the mayonnaise. Thy, my frame was not hidden from thee. When I was being made in secret, intricately wrought in the depths of the earth, thy eyes beheld my unformed substance. In thy book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. That's why he's concerned with knowing you. The creation, not only... We forget that this creation that God made was made to be to, to, to focus on the autonomous making of a man in the image of God. It was all for him. So that God had this relationship with the autonomous other. That it might be enjoyed. And we forget that although I could take some of these verses and read them over to a question on abortion or right to life issues, that's not what it's about. It's about God. God is involved in you from your creation. Man's creation, you're being built inside your mother's womb. And then he says, in thy books were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. And you have to ask yourself a question. Is this days granted? How many days you get? Or days detailed? What goes on on those days? In other words, was it, a, was it a, a, an available calendar or was it a biography? That's your, your, basic, your basic question. You can have, because we're all souls here, you can believe what you like about it. Make up your mind. I, I tend to think of days granted because he's talking apart from this about the, it was written in the books what the days detailed. What is this other business about finding stuff out about you? Searchest me. Discernest. Knowest. Acquainted with. So I put the two together and say he knows me what I'm doing and he knows how much either genetically or because he built me, you know, biologically, he built me and said, okay, this is what, that, that, that uh, stroke, that those french fries that you love so much, that's going to happen to you when you're about uh, 63 next year. And I'm out. The number of days formed for me. He says, how precious to me are thy thoughts, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. When I wake, I'm still with thee. Now, whatever doctrine you bend towards, classical theism or some other kind of theism, watch out for teaching his doctrines the precepts of men. There's a tendency for us to build a theology off of proof texting and saying, you know, actually I should be proving to myself what David is saying, not what I can make David say. 
even if it sounds like he supports what Evan thinks 100%. You're, it's more important that you think what David was after God, what, what he's doing in Psalm 139. And if I stopped right here, and I thought that Psalm 139 ended here, and sometimes people read the next verse and they don't understand how it has anything to do with it, and so they stop reading because they think, you know, he's, he's changing his mind about what he's talking about. Why is David telling you how much he knows God knows him? And how much God cannot be avoided in his knowledge of you? And how central that is to even existing in a way that you can't even parse out how many different axes God knows you on. Because he says in verse 19, Oh, these are the red ones. These are the important ones. Oh, that thou would slay the wicked, O God. <laughs> Hello? You know, we've just been meditating on God's knowledge, and especially if you're, you know, having a position on abortion that you wanted to use those. David, remember, is a man of blood. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. He's a killing machine. It's Rambo. I don't know if that's an optimal soldier. He's the, he gets out there and kicks butt, takes names. Lots of people died. He was, he was such a killer that he wasn't allowed to build the temple in Jerusalem. God would not allow him. He said, um, yeah, thanks, but thanks. You're a man of blood. And he gets to this point after the, you know, the soft and romantic shepherd that all the chicks dig. You know, three stanzas you might think are, or, or verses on the knowledge of God, how much I've known. Oh, man, God, I wish you'd kill all these people. I would, would that you would slay the wicked, O oh God, and that men of blood would depart from me. Men who maliciously defy thee, who lift themselves up against thee for evil. God knows everything about this guy. And David has just said, you know everything about me. Let me tell you how I'm feeling right now. Dead. I want them all dead. Then he says, then he asks a question. He says, this is how I feel. This is what I think of how I feel. Do I not hate them that hate thee, O Lord? Do I not loathe them that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. He wants God to know, he says, this is my position. I think you know me inside out, in the immediate, completely. I can't run away anywhere from you. You made me this way. You made me. You built me. You gave me the days I would have. Now, what's this psalm in the Bible for? Proof text for classical theism? Or for David to find something out? He gets to the end of the psalm and goes, you know how I'm feeling? I want to see some dead Philistines. You know, when, when he was asked for a bride price for Michael, 
100 Philistines would have to die to provide it, he killed 200. Just to run up the score, just to say, yeah, I care a lot for this girl. But he wants to be known by God. He wants to have his feelings, his moral conclusions about his feelings. Now, you might not agree with David. You might think this is an example of David, and like in other places where he doubts God or other things. You might have those opinions, but this is what you should share with David. You have a God who knows you right well. He is not here to be a particular argument and a particular definition about God. He is here knowing you inside and out as you actually are right now, not how you actually are in 10 years, but how you are right now. How you're behaving at home when you're there, when you rise up, when you go out, when you get there. What you're about to say and when you say it. And then he, David, is able to say, and this is what I'm thinking right now, O Lord. I think it's good. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. He submits himself to that knowledge. This is what the Christian life is about regarding the knowledge of God. It's not about getting into a fight with someone who disagrees with you about the knowledge of God. It's about you bowing the knee with you as you are, because you are the thing known. You're supposed to know him, and he is, you're declaring how much he knows you. And you know the true answer that you th- at least you think you do. But you're going to submit yourself humbly to that knowledge and say, Lord, you've looked at me. Back in the first, I was searched, knowest, discernest, searched, acquainted. You knowest it all together. You've beset me. You've stalked me. That's what I want you to do. You've got some things that you think, not doctrines, opinions you have of someone who annoys the living heck out of you. You want to be able to say, my God knows me. I want him to examine this. Not to defend yourself with a rationalization to your friend. Well, yeah, well, he did this or she did this to me, and so I I, I just can't stand to be around him. Well, why don't you say it to God? Your friend doesn't know you that well. Your friend does not know your heart and how you prevaricate and how you change the story to make it look better for you. You need to say, Lord, look at me. Look at me hard. See if there's any wicked way in me. Let God, who discovers on all axes all things about you, you may start the equation thinking you were in the right. The enemies you had were God's enemies. But are you willing to have his knowledge take you apart? His knowledge to tell you, you know, say you're depressed or angry or whatever it is. You begin to realize when you ask God to know you and you start looking at the word of God to help you in that analysis of what kind of mind do you have that you've excused you've tried to dress up your sin 
in some kind of sanctimonious uh, uh, defense. Now you're just conceited. You're just arrogant. You're just self-righteous. You're just whatever the, the thing is that is and the, you, what you want to know is how does God know you? Because you want to have, as a Christian, you want to have God's view of the whole universe. You want to have God's view of you. And if he thinks that's inappropriate, if he thinks this is, this is, what did they say to the, uh, I think the disciples, um, in one place, you do not know what spirit you are of. Or Paul, I think in the Galatians, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. We are doing things, thinking things, trotting things out with more Christians held an immediate sense of the knowledge of God of them and practiced what David practiced here and say, Lord, this is, I, I, I think I'm right. But here, look at it. Your looking at it will illuminate or bring to light real guilt. Real also leading, holding. God is a blessing in knowing you, but you can't dodge anything. That's the nature of this grand knowledge that's far beyond what you could imagine, being known this well. And you have to decide whether or not you want him to do the analysis. Well, you want him to look into you and not just confess it when you feel like you finally come to a conclusion. Well, yeah, I guess I probably was wrong. You want to ask him to lead you to that point. See if there's any wicked way in you and lead you in the way everlasting. When I was looking at this, when you think about God's knowing what more could you ask for? Because the beauty of the knowledge is the perfecting of life. I mean, if you see God's knowledge of all things, you have got the inside skinny that nobody else seems to be picking up on. They're still making the same mistakes they've made for 6,000 years. Let's not make them. Let's start to take God's vision of it. And when it told us, and his, his books were written, every one of them, now whether or not there's a a book written with all the events in your life, your biography written beforehand. There is certainly your biography written afterward. I thought of Revelations 20.12 and books were opened. Written in the books, they were judged by what was written in the books, by what they had done. That was the nature of the books. So there might not be a biography of you beforehand it might just be a calendar, but it ends up being a biography at the end. And when it says, what's the phrase? Oh, you're like an open book. We get to read what's on the page. Someone is that visible. You're an open book to the living God. Is that what you... Uh, are happy with? Is that where you want to go? That's where David was going. That's where David wanted to offer himself to his God. He had this ending waiting for him to declare what he believed about God's knowledge of him. 
Let's keep it that way. Let's thank him. Dear Lord God, we are grateful. Know us and try us. Take our things we claim are righteous and uh, offer them back to us, scrutinized by your standards, your knowledge of man, your knowledge of us. Help us be submissive to that. Lead us in the way of life everlasting. In your son's name we pray. Amen.